0: Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia AudioCast. This week, we have Part 4 of the Secret Agent X story, The Fear Merchants, originally published in March 1936, and written by Paul Chadwick under the pseudonym Brand House. If you're a fan of Pulp, you also might want to check out the latest release from Brick Pickle Media, Chicago Pulp Tales, now available in print and ebook formats. It features vintage Pulp stories set in the Windy City and can be ordered from Amazon or wherever books are sold. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2020. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. If you'd like to support our efforts, you can find a link to all of our books and our entire online store on the website. And with that, on with the show. Chapter 9 Murderer's Trap Twilight was the hour that Betty Dale loved best. It spread a lavender mantle across the bare branches of the trees outside her apartment window. It softened the outlines of the other buildings on the opposite side of the street made the whole city seem magical, enchanted, like a setting from an Arabian night's play. Twilight always made Betty Dale feel alive, vital, tender, no matter how hard a day she had had at the Herald office. She sat at her window now, face dreamy, the salmon tint of the far-off sunset brightening and turning to turquoise the deep, flawless blue of her eyes. She sat quietly, thinking of Secret Agent X. For this strange man of a thousand faces, this man of mystery and destiny, was often in her thoughts. They had passed through the valley of the shadow together. There was a bond between them, deep, unspoken, encompassing as life itself. The tinkle of the telephone startled her from her reverie. She got up, crossed the floor buoyantly, in graceful swing and strides, alert as always. Besides being a lovely, high spirited girl, Betty Dale had built up a reputation for herself as a reporter. There were many gentlemen of the press who envied her for her ability at piecing together a story from the most slender leads. A woman's voice sounded in the receiver that Betty held to her ear. I want Miss Dale of the Herald. This is Miss Dale speaking. Oh. Listen, dearie, you don't know me and I've never seen you. They say you're a fast worker, so I've got a hot tip for you. What about? About the mugs have been setting those fires, you know, incendiaries, they call them. All right, I'm listening. I can't talk good here, dearie. Get me? There may be some guys listening. I'm not taking any chances. This is dynamite. TNT, dearie. Then why do you want me to tell about it? "'Did you ever hear of a guy throwing a girl down? "'I got a chip on my shoulder, dearie. "'I got a chip as big as a log of wood. "'I'm a nice, quiet girl, but when a mug gets tough, I get tough, too. "'I'm going to spill something that'll tear this town wide open. "'When I get through, there's going to be a certain mug "'who'll wish he had been nicer to his a sweetie. "'Now, I guess you get me?' "'Yes,' said Betty breathlessly. "'Yes, I think I do.' "'She was trembling with excitement. "'Half the tips that put crooks behind bars and sent her in the chair "'came from disgruntled moles.' Underground women were poisoned when they weren't treated right. She learned that from long contact with the police, and if she could get a lineup on the arson ring that was terrorizing the city, it would constitute the biggest scoop of her life. Outside of that, the thought occurred that she'd be able to help the secret agent. If she got some valid information, she would turn it over to him first. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Where can we get together? The answer came back quickly. I'll take a jaunt down Avenue A in about 15 minutes. I'll begin at the top and walk downtown on the west side looking in the store windows. Nobody get wise if I meet a frail like you. I'll just make out you're an old college pal. We can go somewheres and gab. How will I know you when I see you? Watch out for a nifty dresser and a green coat and a red hat. And I'll be carrying a load of silver foxes just to make sure I'll pin a pink tulip up front. Come up and say hello, dearie, when you see me. All right, said Betty. I'm a blonde. I'll be wearing a gray squirrel coat and a small gray hat. She hung up and began dressing quickly, slipping out of her lounging pajamas into her tweed business suit. She got into her hat and coat and put a small notebook in her bag. As an afterthought, she went to a desk drawer and drew out a thirty-two automatic the Syria agent had given her. It might come in handy. Anything connected with the arson ring spelled danger. In a moment, she was on the street. Ten minutes later, a taxi her to the vicinity of Avenue A. She walked to it, headed uptown on the west side, and kept her eyes open for the nifty dresser. So intent was she scanning the sidewalk ahead that she didn't notice the brown sedan nosing slowly along beside her. The light was dim now. The men in it and the car itself were hardly more than confused shadows. Betty did not turn until the car pulled into the curb directly beside her. Then the cry of amazement and terror that rose in her throat froze in silence on her lips. For death leered at her out of the brown car's open door. Death seemed poised for instant action on the end of the machine gun that was thrust toward her. Don't move, girlie. Don't make a sound or you'll get it. Just act natural and come here. Betty did so, stilling the frantic thumping of her heart, moving her high heeled slippers that seemed suddenly filled with lead. A hand caught her arm, roughly, jerked her in. She was pulled down on the seat beside the gunman. The door slammed shut, the brown car sped away. The interior was dark. Betty got a glimpse of the ugly head of the driver, but when she turned fearfully to see the face of the man beside her, she saw only a pair of glaring eyes. Then she gave a scream and tried to shrink from him. For something the descending shadow in his hand came down over her head. Betty struggled fiercely, desperately, with the stifling sweetish fumes of chloroform in her nose. She kicked and writhed as the dizzying vapor invaded her straining love, lungs, but her struggles became steadily weaker. At the end of a minute, she lay still. Secret Agent x was worried. For the first time in several hours, his mind was not occupied with the arson ring menace. He was thinking of his loyal friend and secret ally, Betty Dale. He stood in the shadows across from her apartment, back bracing as an iron fence. He was staring up at her windows, a moment before he had given his strange identifying whistle. Pedestrians paused, puzzled by it, unable to discover its source, but no light showed in the windows of Betty Dale's apartment. The agent knew that if Betty were there, she would come to the still and look down. He turned away. Then something, a strange uneasiness that he couldn't shake off, made him cross the street and enter the apartment building. The telephone operator was bending over a switchboard. She didn't see him. He slipped past her silently as a shadow and dodged into the cavern formed by the bottom of the stairs. He ascended the stairs swiftly and turned down the corridor on the floor that Betty Dale's apartment was on. There was no answer to a soft knock, and the agent drew out his ring of skeleton keys. Few locks in the world could resist his expert fingers. Betty's didn't, and the moment he had the door open and had stepped inside. He turned his flash around the familiar room, eyes alert for anything suspicious, but there was nothing. The attractive chamber, with its cozy, feminine touches, was as neat as always. It seemed to reflect the sunny, straightforward personality that was Betty Dale's. The agent crossed quickly to a small desk and opened a drawer. His pencil flash sprayed over its contents and abruptly he frowned. The automatic he had given her wasn't there. Among many secret understandings he had with Betty was one concerning this gun. She left it in the drawer except when danger threatened. Its disappearance now meant that Betty had feared something. What? The agent's thoughts raced swiftly. Too often in the past, a black cloud of crime had menaced her fearfully because of her association with him. He tried always to keep her from danger. But her courage, her loyalty made her an active worker for his cause. The agent searched her apartment, hoping to find some message from her, some note or clue, but found none. He left with a sense of uneasiness heightened, but he had gone and taken her automatic with her. There might not be anything serious in it, but he wouldn't rest until he knew where she was. He moved up to the girl's switchboard operator in the vestibule. He had seen her often, talked to her many times, but she didn't know him in his present disguise. He was made up as a black-haired, sharp-featured, youngish man. He displayed a press card that said, "'Where's Miss Dale?' She left about dusk after getting a telephone call. She didn't say where she was going.' She seemed in a hurry. A call from whom? Some woman. She didn't give her name. Did you hear what they said? No, mister. I plugged in and let him talk. I'm no eavesdropper. The agent tipped his head and hurried out. He trudged around to various haunts that Betty frequented, made inquiries about her and learned that she had not been seen all evening. He called her apartment six times in the next two hours and was told time she hadn't returned. He sat on one of his hinds that had a phone and gave an order to the girl at Betty's apartment to call him as soon as Miss Dale returned. Midnight came, 1 o'clock, 2, and there was no news of Betty. A abruptly, the agent's finger dropped to the button key of his radio set. His face was bleak. All evening, routine reports had come in from Hobart and Bates. The Messages they were still trying to locate the racketeer, Boss Santos. Operators who worked for X without knowing it in a score of American cities had searched for Boss Santos in vain. Now, X gave a new order to Harvey Bates, short and crisp and emphatic Betty Dale, herald reporter missing. Spread men over entire city. Check up on her. Find her. He rattled off a list of every possible place that Betty might have gone, knowing that Bates' pigeonhole memory would retain them. He started a vast undercover organization on the missing Betty's trail, but still the agent was unsatisfied, uneasy. Twenty-four hours later, X was frantic. Betty had not returned to her apartment. She had not showed up at the Herald office. No one had seen her. Bates' expert operative had managed to unearth only one meager fact. A taxi cab driver picked her up at her apartment and driven to the vicinity of Avenue A. Then her trail ended in utter blackness as though the earth itself had opened and swallowed her. The police knew nothing about Betty Dale's disappearance, neither did the public. Both knew, however, about another dramatic development of the day. The afternoon papers carried screaming headlines. Arson ring threatens to strike again tonight. Insurance head refuses to pay extortionists. Police to guard doomed property. Details of the sinister story followed. L.L. L. Slater, head of the Mercantile Body and Indemnity Corporation of this city, received an extortion threat from the criminal arson ring this afternoon. The telephone was used. The message came from a dial pay station which the police were unable to trace. Slater was told that if he did not pay $500,000 for protection, the great department store of and Sons, inspired by his company, would be burned to the ground. Though Slater would not state the amount of policy is believed that the store is covered by a $10 million premium. Slater bluntly refused to accede to the criminal's demand and sought police protection. The threat was then made that the store would be destroyed this evening. Reserves have been called out, and the entire fire department is waiting. Commissioner Foster has issued a statement to the press, in this instance, the colonels cannot possibly make good their threat. Agent X barely scanned the papers. He had known of the extortionist threat hours in advance of the public. Scallit, a secret member of the Bates organization and also a police detective, had heard of Slater's trouble at headquarters. He had told Bates, and Bates had faithfully relayed the message to the agent. X knew something of LL Slater. He was a stiff necked high principal executive. To anyone familiar with his character, it was a foregone conclusion he would not traffic with criminals. So, from the first, it seemed to X that the store of Jacobian Sons was doomed. Disturbed as he was about Betty Dale, he made it a point to be the scene of the impending crime that evening. If her disappearance had anything to do with the criminal menace he was fighting, he must learn every fact he could. Fate that beneath the disguise of AJ Martin, he pushed through the police cordon that guarded the Doom building. Detectives tried to bar his way. His press card, his ready tongue, and sheer nerve got him by. He attached himself to Inspector John Burke's party. The presence of the homicide squad had held gruesome significance. Men had died horribly at the last big fire. Burke was there seeking information about the killers and be on hand in case of other murders. A few of the city's nerviest police reporters had wormed their way close to him along with Agent X. Their faces showed excitement. One of them touched the inspector's arm. Do you think there'll be any more killings tonight, Chief? Those bombs, I mean. Inspector Burke's gray face broke into a sour, humorless grin. He jerked his thumb toward the sky. The pressman blanched suddenly and started. The sound of airplane m- motors droned down out of the darkness. Their mounting roar was getting steadily closer. Police and waiting firemen heard it. Bodies taunted with dread. His face lifted. An idea of the commissioners, explained Burks. Those are government ships up there. There's going to be an air patrol over this whole section tonight. Let those murdering devils try it. Any airplane stunned they'll get their bellies filled with lead. What about the department store, inspector? Do you think it'll be fired? Personally, only grunted and turned away. Doubt was in his eyes. He did not tell the reporters that Detective Scallett had suggested they examine the sprinkler system. The tip had come secretly from Agent X. But though firemen and police had inspected the sprinklers carefully, nothing wrong had been found. The criminals apparently did not use the same method twice. The tension increased as the evening deepened. It did not seem possible that danger threatened in that great lighted building. Every bulb in the Jacoby department store had been left on. That was another idea of Commissioner Foster's. Prowling incendiaries would be seen if by any chance they slipped into the store. The group of reporters whom X had joined moved restlessly about. They kept making notes, diving into a corner telephone booth to report back to their papers. They asked endless questions of firemen and uniformed cops. They made themselves such a nuisance that Burks threatened to have the lot of them run out behind the fire lines where a curious, tense crowd already waited. At this, the reporters quieted. X went with them around to the north side of the menace building. There was an annex here. A balcony ran, the full width of this on the second floor with a white blank wall behind it. Two fire inspectors walked across it in plain view of the crowd and disappeared through a door. For a minute or two, the balcony was deserted. Then suddenly, one of the reporters close to X gave a strident cry. The agent's head jerked up. His whole body stiffened with amazement. He was more startled, more stunned or surprised than he had ever been in his life. For a girl's figure moved on the balcony. She had a gray hat, a gray squirrel coat. She walked furtively with something in her hand. Where she had come from, no one knew. It was as though she had materialized like a ghostly apparition, but this was not what made the agent's heart stand still. It was the clear view ahead of her face, of her yellow hair. The reporter beside Axe, who had first seen her, spoke hoarsely now. "'I know that dame! She's on the Herald! Betty Dale's her name! What's she doing up there?' As though in an answer, the gray-coated figure on the balcony raised her hand. She seemed to throw something through the door that the fire inspectors had entered. Instantly, there was a bright streak, a flash of lurid light on the other side of the door. Flame rose on that corner of the building, close to a window just around the angle. It mushroomed out. There was a tinkle of glass, a wavering, ghastly hour of dance luminescence. Other flames showed, streaking out from the build- walls across the second floor of the building, as though the whole thing that the girl in gray had thrown had ignited them. A harsh, horrified cry arose from the men straining around X. "'That girl! Betty Dale!' She started the fire. I saw her. Chapter 10 Betty Dale Condemned. Agent X was stunned. Moisture spread a clammy film over his whole body. He'd seen Betty's face and figure with his own keen eyes. There was appalling truth in the accusations of the men around him Betty Dale had set the fire. He fought the idea as a man fights the clutch of some monstrous nightmare. It couldn't be, it didn't make sense. There was some horrible mistake, some ghastly trick. He ran forth with a choking, desperate cry. He forgot himself for once. Emotion carried him away. Betty was up there. Betty was in danger. Betty must be saved. Another shout sounded as he leaped ahead. Look, she's gone! It was true. As mysteriously as suddenly as Betty Dale had appeared, she had also vanished. The balcony was deserted now, yet cold dread still clutched the agent's heart in a grip of iron. The weird light of the mounting flames was increasing. If Betty was up there, she couldn't survive. He ran on, not stopping to wonder how the thing had happened, knowing only that Betty must be there somewhere, still in unthinkable peril. For the fire was spreading with satanic speed. Watchmen on the lower floor were running out. He reached after them in a blistering wave. A burly fireman tried to bar the agent's way. That girl up there, X shouted. We've got to get to her. The fireman clutched him and shook his head. You should worry about her, buddy. She must have left the same way she got there. Save the hero stuff for somebody that needs it. That dang's poison. One of the firebug mob. Agent X jerked jerk free. The fireman swore and made a grab at him, but X was already close to one of the department store doors. A fire inspector, white-faced, came staggering out, striking at burning places on his clothes. He was muttering hoarsely. I couldn't save him. He roasted alive. The man hardly saw X. His eyes were glazed with horror. With constricted throat, X plunged into the building, still hoping to reach Betty. But a wave of heat and a solid wall struck at his face. Heat choked his lungs, pressed at his eyeballs like a searing brand. Heat singed his clothing. He surged on in spite of it till his coat began to burn. He retreated slowly with clenched hands and hissing breath, knowing that no living thing could survive in that crucible heat. If Betty was somewhere in the building, she was already dead. He got a brief glimpse of a man's body ahead of him at the foot of the main stairs. It was the other inspector, his head and shoulders burned off. He saw something else that made his smarting eyes widen in amazement. A steam radiator burst with a roaring explosion, spraying flaming liquid all about. Wherever the drops fell, new fires sprang up. He had learned too late what method the arcering had used this time. He ran gasping into the street. No one noticed him, pandemonium had broken loose. Firemen were yelling, cursing, dragging their apparatus up. News of the girl on the balcony had passed like wildfire from mouth to mouth. The crowd was roaring. There was a discordant, sinister mob. It was known that some of the watchmen had been trapped in the burning building known also that a fire inspector had died i hope she roasted a cop close to spat savagely if she didn't we'll get her and she'll fry in the chair the agent moved up to inspector burks here at burks or order orders to two of his men i don't get it burks was saying i don't understand it all but i saw her she must have gone crazy to do a thing like that but it won't help her any if she's still alive and we catch her she'll to be put away it'll be jail and asylum for that kid for the rest of her life get going boys and find her Jail or an asylum? The words felt like a hateful death knell in the agent's ears. Jail or an asylum for Betty Dale? If she had, somehow, by some miracle, survived the fire, what faced her? She'd be captured, surely. Her way of life were well known to the police. Scores of her fellow reporters would treacherously run her down, thinking only of themselves, anxious to make a scoop. And then, long years behind steel bars, till the spun gold of her hair lost its luster and turned gray. Long years in which her beauty would fade, her face grow wrinkled, her life wither. If Betty Dale helped set the fire, even Secret Agent X couldn't aid her much. He knew it, her very beauty would betray her, or if she tried concealment. conceal her days would be spent furtively skulking from the law. Dulled by the horror of it, shocked as no threat to his own existence could have done, the agent stood by while the firemen battled with the flames. The thing was hopeless from the start. Though no bombs of the bloating death rained from the sky, this time to halt the firemen's labors, the conflagration was too furious to be stopped. The bombs weren't needed. The store had somehow been hunk with inflammable substance. The firemen this time couldn't even get near enough to pump in the smothering gas. The most they could do was save other adjacent buildings. But to X, the appearance of Betty Day on the balcony was a greater one. Through his day's mind came the clear realization that some fiendish criminal influence had been exerted here. He felt like shouting from the housetops, She isn't guilty! She can't be! She would never do a thing like that! He knew it would be useless. The harm was already done. Guilty or not, Betty Dale was already branded. He had heard the reporters talking, seen them running for the telephone booth in the store on the corner. In a dozen newspaper offices, pencils and typewriters were racing as listening ears before telephones learned the news. Great rotary presses would soon be roaring. Special editions would be brought out. Wires were carrying the news to press bureaus all over the country. Betty Dale, golden haired beauty, sets $10 million fire. And down in police headquarters, teletype machines were clinking. Excited men were bawling commands over wires and through the ether. Here was a commercial lead at last. Girl reporter in with arson ring. The agent left the scene of the fire as melted twisted steel collapsed with a crash. The whole great building was sagging inward, falling like a dry barn made of wood. He pushed through the crowds of staring, glassy-eyed people. His mind was still battling with the appearance of Betty. He was building up a theory. Of all people in the city, Betty Dale would be the last to throw in her lot with criminals. Others might not sense that, but he did. And sensing it, he realized her presence at the fire could only mean one thing. The murderous members of the arson room were striking a blow at him. They had ferreted it out the fact that Betty Dale was closer to him than anyone in the world, who seemed punished for his interference. Punished? Or was there something deeper? Bleak eyed, cold, and hot by turns with dread and fury, the secret agent moved toward a spot where he could switch in his radio. If the criminals had murdered Betty, they had brought upon their heads the vengeance of one of the most relentless manhunters in the world. Agent X would track them to the ends of the earth if need be, learn who they were if it took a lifetime, fight them as long as there was a breath in his body. He paused in a shadowed doorway, tapped Harvey Bates' signal. The insect like answer came back quickly. No more lead jet on Betty Dale. Operatives contacting every acquaintance she has in the city. House to house canvas being made on Avenue A. Hope for a more favorable report later. Scowling, the agent sent back a swift rejoinder Betty Dale, seen at burning department store of Je- Jacoby, appears to have started fire. Disappeared, may have perished, recall any men still working on Santos' lead and rush them with others to the vicinity of fire. Comb entire district. Humphrey, Betty Dale takes precedence over all their missions. The agent changed the wavelength of his radio, and tapped a like message to Jim Hobart. He was disappointed in the negative results of his two crime fighting organizations. Yet he doubted they were at fault. Theirs was a routine task. Their failure to learn anything of the whereabouts of Boss Santos or Betty Dale was more proof of the criminal's uncanny cunning. He suddenly turned and strode away from the doorway. He hailed a cab and had himself driven to one of the worst sections of the city. He got out, paid his fare, moved along a quiet street, bordered with ancient rooming houses. Halfway down it, he stopped and slipped into an areaway opening. He stood in the semi-darkness still as a statue. A faint sound had reached his ears, the brittle tap-tapping of a cane. He waited as a shabby, frail-looking figure came along the block. The figure was a man, a beggar, with a tray of chewing gum tied around his middle. He had been on his evening rounds of lighted corners and subway exits. Though his face was pale, wrinkled, there was a strangely peaceful expression on it. A pair of dark glasses covered his eyes and he looked neither to right nor left. The man was blind, forever denied a glimpse of daylight. But the calmness, the composure of his features, indicated that he enjoyed some sort of inner vision. He drew abreast of the agent, seemed about to pass by, then stopped. The cane was held rigid before him. He raised his head slightly, stood as though listening. Suddenly he spoke. Good evening, friend. Whoever you are, a blind man greets you. The agent did not answer, but he left his hiding place, walking slowly across the airway and up on the sidewalk. His footsteps sounding faintly, the blind beggar's voice held instant, excited welcome. Mr. Robbins, I couldn't quite tell from your breathing, but your steps I'd know anywhere. "That is Penny, said the agent. A faint, grim smile twitched his lips. He never ceased to marvel at the blind beggar's amazing acuteness. Months before, made up of a man named Robbins, X had done Thaddeus Penny a great service, and Penny had become his friend for life. Several times, he had helped X identify men by their steps and by his faculty of never forgetting a human voice. And, because he moved ceaselessly and unnoticed through many shady sections of the city, listening and keeping his own counsel, his mind was like an encyclopedia of underworld information. X gripped the blind man's hand. "'You tried to fool an old friend,' said Penny, smiling. But friendship is such a blessed thing that sight is not needed to see it. X was used to Penny's quaint way of talking. The blind man often spoke in parables. But the smile suddenly left Penny's face and his voice grew serious. You are in trouble, friend. Your hand is cold. I can even feel you trembling. What is it? What is wrong? I'm worried about another friend. It's a long story. I won't go into the details. But someone, this friend, is in deadly danger. And you don't know where she is. She? Yes, men of good heart use one voice when speaking of men, another when speaking of women. This friend is a woman, perhaps a girl. Right, said the agent, a girl, but what I want a view of you is information that may help me to find her, and that information concerns a man. Have you ever heard of Boss Santos? Surely. The fame of the wicked spreads more rapidly than that of the virtuous, but this man you speak of, Boss Santos, has disappeared. Police are searching the city for him at this moment. I know it, but you have ways of picking up information that police have not. "'Don't put yourself in any danger, but go to some of the places where Santos was known "'and listen to what you hear. I'll meet you again later.' "'The agent dropped a dollar bill in the blind beggar's tray, "'but Penny heard the soft fall of the bill and shook his head violently. "'Friendship never asks reward, and because my wants are few, I live in luxury.' "'Keep it, then,' said the agent, "'and give it to some of the poor people you know.' "'He pressed the blind beggar's hand and strode quickly away. "'Leaving Penny, X drove in a cab to one of the city's branch post offices.' He looked through the glass The box number 2020, saw that it was empty and scowled. This was one of several boxes he rented in various names. Betty Dale knew the numbers of all of them. He had a wild hope there might be some message from her. Grimly, he went the rounds. At the last box, hired under the name of Gregory Martson. He saw a white piece of paper and his heart gave a leap. He opened the box, grasped the paper, a small envelope, and suddenly went cold. It was typed, but not in the blue ink that Betty Dale had always agreed to use. This meant she had not done it herself. It gave rise to dreaded. Sinister Possibilities. The agent's fingers were tense as talons as he opened it. There was a short, unsigned note inside. Marsden, if you receive this in time, go to the drugstore at the corner of Stillwell Avenue and 23rd Street. Be there at 11 sharp. A phone will ring one of the booths. There will be a call for Marsden. Answer it. The agent looked at his watch. It was 15 minutes of 11 now. This note had come in a late time, timed as though he were meant to receive it just after the fire. He had visited the box a dozen times through the day, and there had been Nothing. "'With dread still clutching his heart in a grip of ice, "'the agent dashed outside and hailed a taxi. "'He pressed a handful of bills into the driver's hand. "'Stillwell Avenue and 23rd Street, as quick as you can. "'Step on it. Don't mind the lights.' "'The driver took long chances rushing across town. "'Once a policeman shrilled at him, but the cabby didn't stop. "'He drove up at the designated corner with a squeal of tires. "'He stared wonderingly after the agent's retreating figure. "'The agent plunged into the drugstore just as eleven struck. "'A telephone in a booth was ringing. "'A dapper clerk came up from behind the counter and lifted the receiver. "'He appeared in a moment, glanced around the store.' Is there a Mr. Marsden here? The agent nodded, slid by the drugstore clerk and into the booth. He closed the door tightly, pressed the receiver to his ear, and was conscious of the trip-hammer beating of his heart. A voice came over the wire, solemn, sinister. Have I the pleasure of addressing Secret Agent X? The agent answered with a studied effort at calmness. Gregory Marsden speaking, who is this? Good evening, Marsden. That question I can't answer. Is there any other you would like to ask? The agent caught the gloating, taunting quality in the words. Cords in his neck swelled out. His fingers clenched the receiver till the knuckles whitened. Still, his voice was calm. Have you one to suggest? There's a girl, I believe, a certain Herald reporter, Miss Betty Dale. She took part in a rather sensational crime tonight. The police are searching for her now. It is barely possible that news of her would interest you. X could not smother the gas that rose to his lips. It brought a chuckle. Unsuppressed fury caught at the agent's speech for a moment. If you've killed her! If I have, what then? What could you do about it? It happens, though, that I haven't. She's very much alive. There was a second silence while relief flooded the agent's heart. He felt weak, almost dizzy, proof of the strain he had been under. The taunting voice went on. So far as her future goes, she might as well be dead. Life holds nothing for her except disgrace, prison, a psychopathic ward. Society is not kindly to those who commit arson and murder, even if they happen to be beautiful young girls. She isn't guilty. Do you think I don't know it? Oh, your faith in Miss Dale is touching. You say she isn't guilty, and let us suppose for argument's sake that she isn't. That doesn't change things for her. She was seen by police and reporters. Detectives are hunting for her now. Her guilt is being blazed across the country. If she were caught, no matter what fantastic alibi she gave, no jury would clear her. The public is keyed up and wants the victim. A wolf in sheep's clothing, an attractive young woman, would serve as well as any. You are enough of a psychologist to realize that. The secret agent inwardly agreed. The sinister, unknown criminal was framing his own thoughts, hurling them in his teeth. Betty Dale might as well be guilty. She was doomed already. The hungry voice of public opinion had condemned her. "'Why are you telling me this?' asked the agent. "'Because you're one of the few people in the world who can save her, clear her, "'because I'm willing to bargain with you. "'I ask, certain services you can render in return for Miss Dale's freedom and good name.' X was silent, and the voice at the other end of the wire asked coldly, "'Do you agree?' The words came in a torture whisper from X's lips. "'I agree.' Right, I thought so. You're not a fool. Go once to the empty house at number 42 Stilwell Avenue. You'll find the basement door open. Walk through the kitchen to the large empty closet in the rear. Close the door behind you and press the electric button under the shelf in the center of the wall. And that is the end of chapter 10. Thanks for listening today. And just a reminder that if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production, and we'll be back with a new episode next week.